Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. There's the sound music. I thought we were going, going uh, doing something wrong there. It was broken, but there we go. Back to normal. I am Heather Stark, and I am the host of... Uh, Three Women, Three Ways. This is our show where we talk about things that a lot of shows don't talk about. We talk about issues that are um, uh, very dear to women, but we also talk about issues that are very dear to us as a society. And today, we're going to be talking with two very prominent ladies. Um, And I say that that they are very prominent because um, the work that they do is fantastic. And uh, the work that they have done is fantastic. So um, right now I'm going to uh, welcome uh, Velma Valoria. And she is a former Washington State legislator. And she's also an expert on trafficking. And we're going to be talking about trafficking today. And uh, Emma, uh, here I I knew I was going to massacre your name, Emma, uh, Katagi, who is a service provider in the areas of um, uh, trafficking. So we're going to talk about what is trafficking, um, how does it impact us, why should we care about it, and all of the ins and outs of trafficking. So welcome, Velma. Welcome, Emma. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting us. Yes, thank, thank you. you. We're both here. Okay, good. Um, and Velma, do you want to identify yourself so we can tell your voice? This is Velma Valoria. And okay. I just wanted to say thank you to Heather for inviting us to this talk show. Good, good. Um, and I'm honored to have you here. Emma, do you want to uh, throw out and introduce yourself so we can recognize your voice? Yes, this is Emma Katagi, and thank you also for inviting me on this uh, talk show. Well, you are welcome. Um, Velma, let's just jump into it. You were a uh, 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 Washington State legislator, and you were um, instrumental in passing House Bill 1175, and that was in 1996? Actually, it was in 2001 or 2003. Oh, okay. I got ahead of myself there. In 2001, but, and this was really the first uh, legislation that any state had passed to criminalize trafficking as surprising as that uh, um, seems. And uh, how did you come about doing that, Velma? How did you become instrumental in passing that legislation? So, Heather, this is, this is what happened in the, in the Filipino-American community, right? It was, a, 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 I guess, a, a pattern that was happening here in Washington State. So in 1995, there were three Filipino women that were killed inside the King County Courthouse. One of them was a mail-order bride, and the other two were her friends who were giving her support as um, she was getting ready to file for a divorce against her husband. And I remember as, that um, in the news. Yeah. Yes. So that was the beginning of that, right? And then by 1999, there was another mail-order bride from the University of Washington. She was from Kyrgyzstan. And she was a student at the University of Washington, and her uh, body was found in a shallow grave by her husband's yard near her home. Yeah. And so we were taking a look at why, what is this that's happening, and um, we thought it was just an issue of domestic violence. And then this is where Emma comes in, and she says, Velma, it's more than just domestic violence. So Emma, take it away. Yeah, so um, the Asian and Pacific Islander Women's Family Safety Center was started in 1993, and its reason is because there is no culturally appropriate services for the victim of domestic violence. But then, you know, through the process, when they come to us, we found out that it's not just a victim of uh, domestic violence. And, you know, as we said, the male-ordered bride, they're also being trafficked. So when I talked to... I keep insisting that we need to look into that, we need to do something about it, because oftentimes, you know, the first encounter we have is domestic violence, but also they are also a victim of human trafficking. And so that's how we started. And so well, Emma brought the issue. Oh, I'm sorry. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so Emma, tell us where you work. You said that they come to you. So explain where okay. where that is. Okay. So now I work for API Chaya. It's formerly Asian Pacific Islander Women's Family Safety Center in Chaya. We merged about three years ago. And we provide services to the victim of domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, and general crime. And so I think for us, we want to make sure that we provide culturally appropriate services. And so when they come to us, uh, once they become identified as a victim of human trafficking, and I have to say this also that most of the client or the survivor that we work with is labor trafficking, not just sex trafficking. And so what we do is we provide direct service, case management, um, anything, once they get out of the situation, we provide them a housing, medical, food stamp, food bank, whatever they need, interpreter, lawyer. So those are the things that we provide them. We want to make sure that they are well comfortable because oftentimes when the trafficker told them that they don't trust anybody, they need to make sure that they don't you know, have uh, access to anyone. So we try to develop yeah. our relationship before, you know, we can actually get in. And once they come to us, we will provide everything to make sure that they feel comfortable and they raise culturally appropriate services. Uh-huh. Wow, that sounds wonderful. Um, let me throw out our phone number here, Emma. It is, uh, if you'd like to call in, share your, your stories, your questions, whatever it is that you'd like to uh, join us in, in, we would welcome you. And that call-in number is 646-378-0430. 646-378-0430. And we're talking, of course, about trafficking. And I have to tell you, Emma, that uh, a a few years ago, I was working on a master's degree, and my thesis was on uh, services provided to uh, survivors of uh, domestic violence. And your organization participated in my survey, and you were one of the few organizations that provided such comprehensive assistance. So I know very much how Chaya uh, operates, and I admire them greatly. Um, Emma, what, why did you... Did you approach uh, Velma? Did you know Velma? How did this this association occur? Yeah, I've known Velma for about 35 years ago. We were kind of a community uh, community activist. Uh, we were anti-Marcos, uh, uh, you know, activists that time. And so I think because of our work, we really look into the social uh, justice uh, framework, and we work with immigrants. Uh, right, uh, labor, everything. And so when, once you become a uh, state legislature, I knew that this is a way that we can change or make some changes that is culturally appropriate that actually uh, focus on the victim service center. Okay. Yeah. When you say culturally appropriate, explain what you mean with that. I think what we want is to make sure that we understand their culture, not just the language, but really understanding that the main, uh, the traditional approach might not work for our community. And I also have to say, uh, API Chaya, we serve so many different communities. So what, what works for Filipino might not work for Japanese, Vietnamese, Cambodian, and South Asian. So we have people that coming from their, that background. We have the language capability. We understand the culture. We make a very uh, different, unique approach. Uh, we don't usually just tell them right away, oh, this is what you need. Oh, this is how you're going to do it. We actually say, okay, how do we want to work with you? What is it that you need? And sometimes, you know, we have to go around to provide the services just to make sure that you know, they get what they need for because, you know, there's so many barriers. You know, English second language, you know, a lot of them are limited non-English speaking. They don't have a legal status. They don't know how to uh, drive. And a lot of times, you know, they depend on us so much that we want to make sure that it is, you know, that we are very uh, sensitive about their needs and their background. 
Okay. When you mentioned that, I wrote a book a few years ago uh, about women leaving uh, domestic violence situations, and one of the contributors told a story of her mother, who was a Japanese war bride. And one uh-huh. of the points that she made about why her mother didn't leave uh, immediately after you know she uh, uh, realized she was in an abusive situation is because of her family back home. She would have disgraced her family back home in her culture if she had had, uh, divorced. And I thought, you know, wow, I mean, to have that kind of pressure, I I can't imagine that additional pressure on somebody who's experiencing uh, abuse. So I I understand what you mean by culturally appropriate. Um, Velma, Mm -hmm. what did you think when Emma came to you? Was this an issue that you you understood, or did you have to educate yourself? Actually, not only did I have to educate myself, but we had, in order to pass uh, the legislation, we needed to educate the public. In 2001, there was nobody talking about human trafficking. And so what we did was actually study and make the connection about why is mail-order bride a form of trafficking. So we had the University of Washington. There's a professor there named Norma Timbang do a study. And she called, um, she finally came to the conclusion that it is bride trafficking. And the reason is because, number one, they don't necessarily come to the United States because they love a person, which is probably what it is. But many people from the Philippines become mail-order brides because it's a form of escaping poverty. And I'm not saying that all mail-order brides are the same, right? But... Uh, the reality is it's a poor country, and there are no jobs available, particularly for a lot of women, so the next best thing is to go into the male or the bride industry. And at the time we were studying it, there were all these male or the bride um, organizations, or at least on the website. I haven't looked lately, but um, there were these male or the bride websites that people could sign up for. And what we found was that when these mail-order brides came to the United States, like Emma said, they really don't have a support system. Many of them speak English as a second language. They don't know their rights or where to go to, to get help. And so it's hard for them to leave their, their husband or the abuser. So, yeah, so yeah. when she came to me, when she came to me, it was an issue of, okay, it, it's also an issue of trust that, that Emma and I have had over the years, right? Because we are both social justice activists, we knew that this was something that we needed to take on. The problem sure. was we didn't know quite what was happening. Mm-hmm. Well, that was very early on. I mean, people weren't even talking about it in the um, late 90s yeah. or early 20th cent- or and, 21st century. Um, I mean, it's only been recently that we've even been reading about it in the popular publications. Um, let me jump in here for a minute, Velma, and ask you, what is the difference between sex trafficking and what's lumped together as human trafficking? What's the difference with that? You know what? I really have a, um, I guess, uh, what I'm struggling against is that not all human trafficking is sex trafficking. So there are different forms of trafficking. We, in our community, also experience what we call labor trafficking. And these are people that are brought into, like, nursing homes, for example, to work in nursing homes, and they are um, oppressed in that nursing home. Sometimes um, they're victims of domestic violence. We find also... um, people who are trafficked through the um, construction industry, the hotel and restaurant industry, um, the farm um, workers, you know, those are, those are areas where we know that there are victims of human trafficking. And it's not just about sex. It's really about labor. So that's one. And then there's the other thing about there's something that's happening also in different countries where there is organ trafficking. So like, for oh. example, people can, yeah, so people can live without one kidney, right? And then yeah. they sell their other kidneys for X amounts of dollars. 
and yeah. then but they don't get treated, and so what happens is many of them die. And that other, the other one is adoption. You know, there's a lot of uh, human trafficking going on in adoption, uh, and that I think that's an area that has not been regulated. And we know it's for the fact that it is happening because oftentimes children have no rights, so they can do whatever they want for these kids. Sometimes they grab it from the parents, or sometimes, you know, when they see these kids in the street, they just take them. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I, you know, I guess when we talk about those of us who are not knowledgeable, when we talk about trafficking, I think we always do assume that it's sex trafficking and not necessarily all those other uh, forms of labor that you mentioned, Velma. I, I just, wow, you know, that it's much more comprehensive. Well, let, me tell you, let me tell you the struggle in this movement, right? When we first introduced it way back in the early 200s, uh, 2000s, people didn't, know what human trafficking was, right? So we had to do a whole education to tell people what this human trafficking is. And then when they grabbed on and, you know, they grabbed on to the issue of sex because I think it's a little bit easier to explain. But um, but then, you know, it became, you know, it, it's overwhelming the other forms of trafficking. So... At the University of Washington, we also think that, you know, we all play a part in um, making human trafficking happening. Like we buy from clothes, uh, we buy from manufacturers that play, pay uh, small wages to the people who make them um, and exploit the workers, similar to what happened at the Bangladesh factory. Um, wow. You know, so so we're trying to... We're trying to also take a look at, you know, what's our responsibility as, you know, individuals, as consumers, besides being aware of human trafficking, what can we do to make sure that we buy products that are um, fair fair trade is what they call them. Yeah, um, and of course we hear a lot about that, and I guess we don't usually associate trafficking with that kind of uh, slave labor. Um, so what I'm learning here is that this is a, trafficking is a, a kind of a global term that means a lot of things, not just one thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's, and that's, what, that's that, yeah, and that's what we want people to understand. It's not just one thing, and it's not just about sex. And 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 the struggle is really to get people to understand that we need to move away from just thinking it's one issue. And I think yeah. there is also a different, uh, we have, we call it uh, international and there's domestic trafficking. So I think what we are also looking at is uh, early on and uh, what we've been doing is really provide services to the foreign national. And as you know, uh, coming from a different country, you know, they come in here, they take away their documents, so they're pretty much like undocumented. So they are on the mercy of the trafficker. The domestic trafficking is a whole different thing because you could be a U.S. citizen, a legal, have a legal status, and you could be trafficked from one state to state or city to city, and it's still considered trafficking. And I think this is where a lot of the discussion is uh, when we talk about uh, uh, commercial sex exploitation and, the, uh, you know, the sex trafficking. And I think also because... When you look at sex trafficking, you know, they really look at the brothel, you know. They're, they always uh, have a huge, huge, you know, like uh, victims. And so for us, we do have the labor trafficking, and it could be individual. It could be just a nanny or, you know, like a, a, a wife or something like that. So I think those are the different things that I think a lot of people, they don't see it because the first thing they see is the sex trafficking, which is, you know, like the federal is really... They're not, you know, we're not saying they're promoting it, but I think they they have a lot of, you know, like uh, information out there when it comes to sex trafficking, which is also, you know, consider the prostitution of minors. Mm -hmm. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Um, The the, uh, Good Morning America did a a piece last year on human trafficking, and uh, they 
kind of did it as a, kind of a first-person story, and they definitely focused on the idea of uh, the labor uh, trafficking that you're talking about, Velma, um, and that's really you know, uh, the first thing that, or the, about the only thing that I found, uh, talking about it from that definition, all the other articles that I ran across were on sex trafficking. So um, I can definitely see where this is an issue that we need to think more, more strongly about. And uh, as most things are, um, you know, they're, it's much more complex than what we think. So yeah, and um, that's what right. about, yeah. What about no, geography? I was say, uh, yeah, geography. Ahead. So yeah. the way the way we the way we look at it is Washington State is a very fertile ground for human trafficking. We've got three major airports. We've got international borders. We've got waterways that people can bring in our folks. And then um, things that people don't take a look at is. The Native American lands in our border, they're not really that secure, so a lot of the traffickers go in and out of those, that, that border. Wow. Um, prominent. How, how, how big is this problem? Are we talking just a few cases, or are we, what are we talking about? Well, this is a huge, huge uh, problem. We are looking at multi-billion dollars uh, businesses, but also, you know, when we started, we know that there's about 800 people that they expect to. The challenges that we have is because is that the victim is not going to come forward. We have to find them, and this is where we really want everyone to be educated is we need people to identify them, help them to get out of the situation. They will never be able to get out because part of the challenges they have or the problem is, they, one, they've been told that they, you know, if they go, if they talk to anybody, something's going to happen to their family back home. As you said, they're protecting the family. They don't protect themselves because... You, you know, you don't know if the trafficker is, you know, just making it or not, but if the person says, you know, I know where your son is going, you know, what time they get out of the school, and if you do anything, you know what's going to happen to him. So for us, this is, really, this is a reality for them. So they will never do anything, and sometimes they protect their trafficker because of that reason, is to protect them, their family. And, of course, you know, if they have a bad experience with law enforcement back home, they're not going to trust any law enforcement here either. So I think this is the reason why we try to, you know, develop relationships with the community, provide education to make sure that if they saw it, if they see anybody, because the victim is around us. They're in front of us. We just don't know it because they cannot say anything for fear. Uh-huh. Okay, well, we talked a lot, this is definitely a Filipino problem um, from what I've read, but there are other uh, countries where this is a, a huge issue. Um, uh, can you uh, identify some of those other countries? You know, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're uh, clarifying it because it's not just a Filipino problem. Emma and I just kind of like were shocked when you said that. It is also a problem of the United States. It is a problem of Washington State and every single state in the nation. Yes. So that's, that's how big it is, right? That's just one. And then it's also international. And, and, part, and, and so then we take a look at the whole issue of what causes it, right? What causes human trafficking? If it's not enough for us to talk about, you know, uh, what we're doing, how we're educating people, we need to really pinpoint and talk about what really causes it. And for us, it's also an issue of poverty. Okay, so poverty. So what causes poverty? There's a whole bunch, like you said, and it's not just the Philippines. I'm just using the Philippines as an example, right? But a natural disaster, like Haiphan, Yolanda, Typhoon, right? Mm -hmm. That just happened in the Philippines. We kind of know that there are a lot of displaced people, and they need to get out of there. It's also an area where the recruiters are going to be, you know, um, 
be out there recruiting people, and there are people that want to get out. So that's one. That We saw that also happen in Haiti when they had that big typhoon over there. Earthquake, yeah. yeah. that big earthquake over there. So it's... Um, so what we're saying is there's there's this natural disaster that causes people to be impoverished. There's also what my perspective is, is the whole issue of the international free trade agreements. Because the international free trade agreement, they have this thing called GATS, the General Agreement on Trade and Services, Mode 4. It's the, what they call the natural movement of people, right? Basically, what it is is a company can go abroad and recruit people to come to work here. When they come here, they have really no rights here. There's no pathway to U.S. citizenship. And if, if they leave their employer, the one that brought them here, they can't go look for a job in the broader market. Mm-hmm. So it makes them really vulnerable. It makes and them so that's pretty what, dependent on that employer, too. Excuse me? It makes them pretty dependent on that one employer as well. Exactly, exactly. That's why we're looking at what what we talked about earlier about corporate responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and that's the reason why they can get out of the situation is because they are controlled by them. You know, they've been threatened that you know you don't know anybody if you go out there. You know, you're gonna be in jail. You're gonna be deported. So there's a lot of things that, as I said, sometimes you know. The only person they know is their trafficker, so they trust them. Yeah. Hmm. So they, even if these traffickers treat them badly, they still trust them. Yeah. I think if you don't speak English, you don't know where you are, you know, uh, really the, the chances is you're going to stay with them. The other thing also is when you're talking about labor trafficking, the you know, the people that we serve because they are individual, sometimes they will bring her by the people that they trust or even relatives. I mean, we, I've seen, you know, like relatives, you know, uh, traffic their own relatives. And of course, you know, uh, when they're kids and they're taking it from your, you know, from your cousins back home, of course you're going to trust them, you know, because they're going to promise that, okay, we're going to give her, I said, okay, well, I'm going to give you the best in the world, you know, education. And so I will talk to them as a, you know, mother and say, hey, you know, trust me, I will take care of her. And that's how it is. So when they get here, of course, you know, she's, Velma's not going to go to school. She's going to be, you know, taking care of my kids, you know, 24-7, you know, she can get out of the house. So that's how they trust them. And, of course, you know, I have all her documents, so she won't be able to go anywhere. And she have, I'm not have to introduce her to anybody, or even if I introduce her, I just say, oh, that's my niece. You know, and she's just staying with me. So who is going to think that I'm, you know, abusing her or, you know, like basically, you know, slaving her? Nobody, because she's my relative, and that's been happening. <laughs> Okay, so we have traffickers who bring people into the United States. Do they take them to other countries as well? Yes, they do. Yeah, and this is uh, this is this is the the problem with you know um, with the trafficking. When you are working with a victim of domestic violence, you know who's the abuser. When you're dealing with human trafficking, it's an organized crime. There is so many people that you're working with, that they're working with, so you don't even know who you're working with. And they transport them. They, you know, basically take them from one place to another, and that's how they get away with it. They don't keep them in one place. And, you know, and this is uh, the challenges that we have. So even for our state, uh, when we pass this law, we're trying to make sure that we use the law. And oftentimes... What we have is the federal, so they get, uh, you know, if we find a trafficker, of course, you know, they're going to go to the federal. And the U.S. attorney here is pretty good with us that they actually uh, was able to um, get some trafficking, trafficker already. um, The cases we have were very uh, successful in here, and most of them are labor trafficking from a foreign national. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so um, this is an economic issue, not just a human rights issue, but an economic issue. 
Oh, definitely. That's why I'm saying what causes human trafficking really is poverty. Poverty is economics, you know. It's so it, 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 it really has a lot to do with that. That's why I think we really need to be careful, for example, the type of clothes that we're buying. Um, you know, but broader than that, I think, is we need to make our government accountable for the type of international foreign trade policies that they are um, negotiating. Like, for example, there's no minimum wage negotiated in all these international trade agreements. Mm-hmm. A person in Indonesia can make $0.32 a day, uh, 32 cents a day, you know, and, and, and there's nothing in the international trade agreement that says you have to pay $15 an hour minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so just so that we're, we're clear... We're talking about uh, human trafficking, not just as sexual trafficking, although that is a huge problem as well. Is, yes. Am I right there? Yes. Yeah. Okay. If, Some of the labor trafficking victims is also sex trafficking. You know, sometimes they rape them. You know, they make them a sex slave. So it's still considered labor, even though it's you know, uh, also yeah. with sex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Traffickers bring people to the United States. What about U.S. citizens being trafficked? Is that also um, something that's occurring? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. As I said, they call it domestic uh, trafficking. So we have foreign national and domestic uh, trafficking. As I said, you know, they could be trafficked here from one place to another. It could be from Seattle to Renton or you know, Seattle to Portland, and that's considered uh, trafficking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've seen a lot, you know, and this is what we've seen. There are foreign nationals, but they are on the brothel. So what they do, they bring them from one place to another, like the parlor, massage parlor. That's one of the area that there's a lot of being trafficked, you know. They, you know, it's a front, you know, a storefront. It's a parlor. But in reality, they're, you know, they're basically prostituting this this, you know, woman, and they have no, you know, they have no idea and they have nothing that they can do because they are in one place and everybody uh, is just uh, controlling them. And some of the other issues regarding domestic trafficking are, you know, when Emma talked to you about the uh, commercially sexually exploited children, mm-hmm. uh, is a lot of the, our kids run away yeah. from home. Mm-hmm. So when the kids run away from home, they become very, very vulnerable, and that's when they get picked up by different, you know, different traffickers or pimps or whatever you call them, and they then, you know, the the person shows gives them some attention, you know, provides them uh, clothing and you know, the housing, and then pretty soon they're 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 being used as sex workers. So, you know, so there's there's a lot of that. That's why I think there's a lot of education being done, I think, in some of our schools around um, sex trafficking or human trafficking um, because there are so many of our children that are susceptible to that, especially the runaways. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What a pervasive problem. How are there any uh, any numbers on how many uh, people this affects, or how many um, trafficked people there are? I mean, can you give us a, an idea of the depth of this problem? Well, I think as I said, um, and I am sorry, I don't have it on top of my. But you can actually go to the uh, Department of Justice, uh, and they will have it there. But the problem that is that is only. They only identify those victims of trafficking that is uh, considered by the federal. For us, as a service provider, we serve more than that. Once they come to us, we identify them as a victim, we serve them. But the problem is sometimes when we send it to the, you know, because they have to be considered a severe form of human trafficking for them to be able to access to the benefits, you know. And there is a benefit once you become a victim of human trafficking. And so we have to go through that. Uh, The other thing also is that uh, when you are looking at the numbers, it doesn't, it's really hard 
we might be working for one person, but that one person probably needs about 10 to 15 different kinds of services. So how do we define it? By a person or by the services? Because we can sit with one client for eight hours just for assessment. So for us, I mean, API Chaya, I know we have about with Washington Anti-Trafficking Response Network. In Seattle, we, I knew we have about 50 or more active clients. So it means wow. that for those that already been helped, that we close their cases, it's not there. So we don't count them. So that's just how it is. But again, you know, if you look at the um, law enforcement, their numbers, our numbers, it doesn't match because, again, it's just like how they take this data, we don't know. Yeah. And that's, a, that's so, a challenge that we're having. It's the type of data that gets collected. So number one, not that very many people say, hey, I'm a victim of trafficking, and then we count them, right? Like, like Emma said, they have to find their way out to report it, or they, we have to find them. So that, that, that's one problem. And then there's a definition of how do you count the victims? Do you count them from the perspective of the services you provide or the actual person that, you know, even before you provide the services? It's just an individual and you count that. So there's, you know, so those are some of the things that we are struggling through in terms of, you know, like identifying the numbers. Because it's a, it's a, what do you call it, question. It's a very common question that people ask, like, how, how much do you think it's happening here? Yeah. And as Emma said, just in the one organization that's active, 50 people, just one organization in a city, just in the city of Seattle. And I think we're getting better now. I know about two, three years ago we probably didn't have that much. But because of all this education is coming, we're getting a lot of calls now. Uh, King County, they have this bus, uh, uh, what do you call that, they put something in the bus. So it's helping. But again, uh, human trafficker is very savvy. They're very smart. So they're always one step ahead of us. And so even, you know, you talk about this backpay.com that they use, you know, to advertise, you know, young kids. So there's a lot of things because, again, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. Trafficker does not look at the person as a human being. They look at them as a commodity that they can sell them over and over again. So I think that's where really is the challenges that we have. And the other thing also is there's not a lot of funding available for the services. This is where we struggle because victims, we, it's not like one time, you know, like one day, six months. Our clients, they serve, we serve them up to seven years. And, that's, you know, so it's a long process because once they become identified as a victim, the investigation will start. And once it's uh, while they're under an investigation, we cannot do anything. So we have to figure out a way how to support them, how to provide them what they need. And so it might take a year or two years before the uh, you know, investigation are over before they can actually put the case you know, on the trial. So those are, again, just to say it's a lot of work needs to be done, but also I think the more we educate uh, the community, the, you know, the listener, the more we'll be able to help this uh, victims to get out of the situation and move forward. Well, what happens to, say, a victim is fortunate enough to find an organization like Chaya that can help them? Um, do they self-present to you, or do you hear about it from other people? or what? How, how does this work? They're usually referred by, you know, uh, different places, community, community, uh, uh, or organization, hospital, uh, school, they're coming from all over. Law enforcement is one because what we, what we do is we have a good relationship and partnership with the law enforcement here. So what they do when they are called and they have identified, they, want, uh, they call us and we work with them first before they do anything because uh, we know that a lot of the victims, they, they have a big... Um, they have a bad experience with law enforcement, so 
the law enforcement usually call call us and said, okay, Emma, you guys need to work with them. And when they're ready, then let us know. So the person might not be ready for six months to a year. So the law enforcement cannot do anything. So this person doesn't exist, but we're providing all the services because we want to make sure that they feel comfortable. Otherwise, they're going to go back to the human tra- uh, the trafficker, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay. So um, we have uh, identified, uh, say, a woman who has been trafficked, and um, she's ready for help or she's she has been referred for help. And you guys have gotten in there, and you've made her feel a little bit more comfortable uh, with what's available to her and and, uh, helping her understand what she's gone through. What then? What happens to the woman then? Um, Is she just kind of cut loose, and and is she uh, repatriated? Is she sent back to her country of origin? Or what what happens at that point? Well, I think they have an option if they want to go back. They will, we will help them to go back. But a lot of time, we they have this uh, relief, immigration relief. So if they are uh, identified as a trafficking uh, traffic victim, they will get a T visa. So that's the way that uh, first, you know, they will be certified. Uh, they'll get the certification from the. Uh, Health and Human Services and the Department of Health and Human Services. What it means is that they can access to the refugee uh, uh, assistance. So DSHS, you know, they could get a food stamp, medical coupon, a little bit of cash while we're waiting for the the case. So that, and again, it's not a lot because it's only good for six months to nine months, and usually. Uh, they need to have at least services available for two years. As I said, sometimes depends on how. And once they have that certified and that trial is done and the case is over, then that's when we can apply for T visa, and that's another six months to a year. So that's the process and all. But you know, they have a chance to become a permanent resident here. Uh, if they, and also their derivatives means their family, they can bring them. Once you know the case are over and they, you know, the trafficker is getting, yeah, already charged. Mm-hmm. So, how many uh, uh, people have you helped? Chai has been around for how many years? I think personally or our organization. As an organization. I think, as I said, an organization. We we probably have uh, probably. More than 50 now. I'm not the only one that doing this. Uh, my coworker is the one that actually doing the direct service. Uh, I'm doing mostly now is the outreach. But just for me, for uh, I, I think I served uh, my, myself. I have about 10 in the last five years. But my coworker, I know that her caseload is about 25 to 30 right now. And so with that, and then we have youth care, and we have, you know, like a international rescue committee, which is, you know, like Washington Anti-Trafficking Response Network. So we are in collaboration and partnership with other organizations. So API Chaya only provide this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And that, and do you work with just Filipinos, or do you work with anyone, or what? What's we your work criteria? with everybody. And not only women, even men. We have quite a few men. So they're coming from all over, you know, and we have to provide them the language. So if we don't have it in place, then we will provide interpreter for them uh, to make sure that, you know, they understand, we understand, you know, what they need. Is. Yeah. Wow. The work that you do mm-hmm. is so comprehensive. Velma, what mm-hmm. still needs to be done to educate people about this problem? So what we're working on um, right now, like I said earlier, is the whole issue of corporate responsibility. So it's not enough for us as individuals to provide information and awareness and um, to be aware of it individually, but really we need to take a look at the corporations that um, have maybe unwitting, what unknowingly um, are using traffic labor. 
so you know like some of the some of the supplies that come from you know abroad one of the things that I'm looking at and that we're trying to put forward is this whole issue of can the University of Washington give us information as to where they get the sweatshirts that they sell to, you know, the Huskies, mm. you know, to the students, right? Yeah. Are those sweatshirts, if you, trace back the, if you trace back the supply chain, what we call the supply chain, in that process of supplying the sweatshirt, is there... Sweat, sweatshop. sweatshop labor. Yeah, you know, where they're cutting, where, you know, pretty all the way to the raw materials, you know. So it's, and, and this is really a very hard because, you know, they might know how they bought their t shirt before they put their logo in it, but then who actually, you know, what, uh, where did they get this cotton or silk that they actually used to make this uh, t shirt? So, all the way for wherever, and it's you know it's just like coffee. Where did they get the coffee or the coffee mug? You know, who you know where did they get the clay before they actually get you know make the mug? So, and I think this is the challenges that's going to be. So for us, it's like we want to really also make sure that the government know where they're getting their supplies. So I'll give you an example, right? When I was in the state legislature, one of the things that maybe a governor would uh, give to you as they signed your bill or one of the things that you can get from the state is a little pin that says the state of Washington, right? But mm-hmm. when you took a look at the pin and it was still wrapped in the little uh, plastic wrapper, it says yeah. made in China, okay? Mm-hmm. So... What, what are you doing with a Washington state pin that's made in China? Where is the corporate responsibility of the state of Washington in making sure that that little pin did not use traffic labor? Or made it. Or, you know, even if it's yeah. made here. Where, where is the responsibility of the state of Washington to make sure that their, their, their supply chain is not um, using human trafficking? Those are the things that we're looking at. And it's going to be big. It's going to be huge. That's why we really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you because that's what's up ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, and I, I appreciate how hard that might be, you know, to track all that down. So um, how would an organization or a consumer, if I'm a consumer, which I am, how do I know whether I'm supporting, um, you know, this, this kind of, slavery or not? How, how would I know? You know, actually, there's been, um, I, was, I was in a um, talk, uh, you know, like a, a professor from the Seattle University actually made a presentation about what she called brand, um, brand clothing. And there are certain brands, I'll give you an example, Patagonia is, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. It's a it's sure. a shop for outdoors clothing, right? They're mm-hmm. very um, yeah, they're very conscious about not using that kind of labor, and so they you know they would be something that we should take a look at as you know people who or, or corporations that are taking um, responsibility. Yeah. You know, it might be a little yeah. expensive, but at the same time, you know, we knew that they're not exploiting, you know, laborers or, you know, like trafficking labor. Because oftentimes when you see, you know, like cheap, uh, you know, uh, clothing. clothing, you don't know why it's so cheap, you know, and where they get the, uh, I mean, where do they have the labor happening. Sure. And I think there is also a link uh, and I, you know, I cannot uh, remember, but they show it one time at uh, Cary Corrick and uh, Jade uh, Will Smith had a wife is actually is on doing this kind of uh, work also. Um, and they have a lot of those uh, businesses that are actually uh, very corp- uh, responsible about it, that they don't use any kind of exploitation or human trafficking uh, I'm sorry, but I can't remember. Yeah, yeah but uh, we have to look through our research. But there are some <laughs> brands that we can use. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, and, and I guess you know the. 
I guess the responsible uh, uh, consumer stuff, I never associated that with trafficking. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm learning a lot here, too. Um, if you, uh, well, what do you see as a future? Go ahead. You know, we are also learning. As, you know, Emma and I, like I said, we've been in this arena since, what, 1995 when the murders happened. And we have learned so much and continue to learn as we're going through this process, right? Mm-hmm. Like this whole issue regarding corporate responsibility, we haven't touched on that um, until just recently, until about three years ago. You know, and then the other issue of like identification, like what you were saying, the University of Washington Women's Task Force is really looking at um, training first responders to identify victims of human trafficking, similar to how we did the whole issue of victims of domestic violence and how, you know, Mm -hmm. the medical providers can spot if this person is a victim of domestic violence. We're trying to figure out something so that we can we can take it a little further and say, okay, what does a victim of human trafficking look like versus a victim of domestic violence, and how can we help the first-time responder, like the medical industry, um, help identify that? Okay, and you said that was University of Washington Women's Centers working on that? or Yeah, uh, the, we have a task force. It's uh, the University of Washington Women's Center Task Force on Human Trafficking. And what we do is we do education. We had a great big conference, international conference, last January 2013. We also had... Um, special, what do you call it, forums on corporate responsibility, and we are doing education, public policy, and research. Um, And then, of course, we we should come out the provision of services. Yeah, we should uh, come up with a way to reward and and acknowledge companies that are uh, conscious and and being uh, aware of uh, the labor and the manufacture of their of their goods, um, you mentioned yeah, Patagonia. Be, yeah. No, we we should, yeah, we should be giving. Yeah, that would be great. Like we could we could have like a little um, what do you call it event where mm-hmm. we can yeah, reward them and acknowledge them. Mm-hmm. So we're uh-huh. we're willing to work with you on it, Heather. So just let us know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds good to me, and that leads me into my my next question, which is, what is the future here? Um, where do we go? Where will we be tomorrow? Where will we be next year? What What's the future of of this? You know, for me, it's more it's it's uh, it's global. <laughs> the future is global. Um, we need to start with um, the whole international trade agreements or um, foreign economic policy, you know, that the United States has and signs with other countries. That's that's one of the things that we really need to take a look at. So everywhere I go, I talk about this mode four, gas mode four, the general agreement on trade and services and the natural movement of people, right? Because that's, that's part of what we may consider illegal human trafficking. It's legalized to bring in people from abroad to come here. You know, that that's one of them that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, for the service provider, we want to continue just, you know, talking to the community to make sure that they understand so they can support us, they can help us to find them, but also finding resources within the community because I think the challenges we have is like even housing is so difficult for us. So if we develop some kind of relationship with, you know, a landlord or a community, sometimes they come through providing that in a very cheap um, rent. And so I think just to continue, and hopefully my hope is that at some point we will eliminate the human trafficking, which is a big task to do. Mm -hmm. Yes, it sounds like a very big task, and I applaud both of you for the work that you're doing. Velma, are you going to run for for, uh, office again by any chance? Oh, <laughs> no, not at this point. I really enjoy my organizing work in the community. Um, having left the state legislature, it's brought me back to the community, and it's really what I enjoy doing. And then to be able to bring forward these types of issues through the media like yourself, being able to speak about it in public um, forums, 
I think those are the things that I really appreciate now that I've left office. Yeah, sometimes it feels really good to just, yeah, sometimes it feels really good to, to handle policy, but sometimes it feels really good to roll up your sleeves and get in there. Um, yeah, and, and you know, and you know the thing that I've learned also, having been on the policy making decision part, and now back to the community, what I've learned is that you can make change in both areas, regardless of where you are. Mm-hmm. And I think Emma and I know that coming from an activist background, that we've been able to make change as activists before we were, before I was able to become a state legislator. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you obviously yeah. had had some recognition for your work, or you wouldn't have been uh, voted into um, the legislature. So, you know, I mean, clearly you've, you were, you were known beforehand, and, and it sounds like you're continuing to be well known for your work after you uh, have left the, the legislature. Um, yeah. Emma, funding yes. is always an issue. Funding is always yes. an issue. Um, how are you managing that? How is your organization getting by, especially in these tight times? Well, I think we're trying to be creative. You know, we do some fundraising, but we also ask, you know, friends that we know. But still also keep looking for the, you know, for the grants. I One of the things that we've been working in, Velma Rubin and, you know, Senator Jenny Colwells, you know, is to really get the state to take some responsibility to provide us, uh, you know, the funding. I know we, we're getting federal, and, of course, as you said, it gets cut and cut. So just being creative, uh, what we do, and uh, I don't know. It's just a, it's a hard thing because right now domestic violence, sexual assault, human trafficking, it's, you know, it's a high priority, but it's low when it comes to funding. That's why. Can I make a plug? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so the, the Give Big program that's happening on May 6th, make sure that you, get, you guys donate for the, for the public, that they donate to their favorite nonprofit, including API Chaya, to um, mm-hmm. donate money because it gets, um, it gets matched. Yeah. Like, for example, you donate $100. If you give big, which is May 6th, then they will get $200 instead of just the 100 It's a Seattle Foundation. Yes, Seattle Foundation is doing yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. I will help you um, And I think, you know, it doesn't take much. I mean, we always oh, think, no, I yeah. think, that, oh, gosh, I'm so tight on the budget, I, I can't give anything. Give a dollar. Give a dollar. Yeah. A dollar, yeah, you know, if yeah, if there's a million people who give a, a dollar each, that's a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. you don't, you know, if you're not in a financial position. But I do think that sometimes when times are tight for us, we tend to think, you know, I can't do it. You know, I can't do it. But then you think, you know, for, save a quarter for four weeks and you've got a dollar you know, that you can give right. to somebody, and that dollar will count. So, yeah. ladies, I have learned so And I will so tell many. you, Heather, that the survivor, the victims, they do appreciate every services, every resources, every support that we gave it to them so they yeah. can move forward. So I just want to let you know that the money, it goes so far. Uh-huh. Yes. Thank you. Well, it sounds like, I mean, the level of support that you provide um, for people going through this is astounding and admirable. And I told you about the study that I did, including Chaya, and you were one of the very few organizations that worked with victims yeah. up to two years, you know, uh, for, yeah. for mm-hmm. you're helping them as long as they really need it. Ladies, I have, yeah. um, oh, wait a minute. I've got my website here, if I can find it. You know, this happened to me before. I had a wonderful quote uh, from Obama uh, about human trafficking, and mm-hmm. it was astounding, and now my, my iPad has made it disappear. <laughs> so I apologize for that. But the federal government is doing uh, some work, and the president has come through uh, himself and um, uh, has ish- uh, addressed this issue and said that we have to do something about this. And so the federal government is looking into uh, trafficking more than it has. Do you have any final yeah. words for us, Emma? Any real quick words? 
Oh, just continue to support us, invite people to, you know, find out more about human trafficking. Emma and I are willing to go to your uh, organization, to your house, to give a little presentation so that, you know, it's a lot of education. And then also, like, you know, what Emma is saying, if we can get $1 from each of those people that we go to to speak, we're going to be okay. And I okay, think for us, you can help us to find one victim, you know, to get yes. out of the situation. We're very successful. And, okay, yeah. great. We've got yeah. 20 seconds left. Give me a website or a phone yeah. number where people can contact. Okay, it's uh, www.apichaya.org, and 206-467-9976 is my organization that they can call. Thank you. Okay. That was quick, and uh, you can do a Google search if you didn't catch those numbers. Thank you for joining us uh, on this very important topic, and we will see you next week. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Heather.